Gennesaret. When there is nothing left in her, when the air boils in her throat and the muscles of her limbs scream and her toes, crushed together unnaturally as they are in thick leather boots, throb with pain, then there is sand and the sound of the sea. Too exhausted for relief, she lowers the child from her shoulders and sinks, herself, down. She is on her back. The sand holds her. She claws at her bindings blindly, face up and drinking in starlight. Her fingers are blocks beating against fabric and then, and then, the shocking bliss of cool air on her feet, of sea air ruffling the sail-like skin that connects her long, delicate dactyls. The flesh is pinched red, the soft lines of scales raw highlights. She weeps tearlessly as she raises her legs, feet forming a fan of flesh above her. The sky is far too alive. Stars shown between the translucent film of her flesh, galaxies blink between the digits. The child mules. That's Phoenix Alexander, a fifth-year PhD student in English and African-American studies at Yale. In addition to writing his dissertation on black feminist science fiction of the late 19th and 20th centuries, Phoenix writes fiction as well. What you just heard was an excerpt from his short story Gennesaret, recently published in Beyond Ceaseless Skies, a Hugo Award-nominated online literary magazine. I'm Nick Curry, and Bara Badwan and I caught up with Phoenix to talk about his fiction, his scholarship, and the connections between the two. Did you like always write things? Yes, I yeah. It's like the cheesy story of like ever since I was little, I was yeah. like drawing things and yeah. writing stories and. The punishment to go up to your room was never a punishment for me because I was already in there anyway. <laughs> like, and your pencils. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I was like, that's fine. Yeah, I can yeah. entertain myself all day. Where do you grow up? Uh, well, I was born in Cyprus, but oh. I moved to England when I was about five years old. Cool. And I grew up in a county just outside of London. It's called Essex. We have our own TV show called The Only Way is Essex, and it is the uh, New Jersey of England. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Yeah. So you grew up there, basically? You yes. Yeah, and I, I grew up in, yeah, went to high school, went yeah. to um, college to study art, initially trained as an artist and went into fashion design. Whoa. And I completed a degree in that, studying at Central St. Martins in London, and then decided that the fashion industry was just too mean and horrid for, yeah. for me. So I decided to go into the lovely world of academia, <laughs> studying literature, which I did at Queen Mary <laughs> University of London, and then finally got lucky and made it here somehow so cool yeah you end up in the fashion industry as yeah. crazy Andrew as a, yeah. when you decide to leave that why mm. did you make the decision to go into the literature degree really I think I made the wrong decision in terms of what was going to be my hobby in life and what was going to be an actual career mm. and you know I loved as, as I said kind of drawing and writing and I just I guess I just picked the wrong one it was as simple as that and I still like working with textiles and surface embroidery and patterning of, of clothes because my, my course I should specify was a fashion with print so we did textile design as well as garment construction it wasn't straightforward like menswear or womenswear where the emphasis is on you know yeah. constructing the garments um, so maybe I should have gone into textiles if I had been a textile designer that might have been a, a more interesting uh, kind of more fulfilling career path but um, and it really kind of, the, the thought of going back to literature and sort of reading all the way through my fashion degree really kind of got me through it to finish it and think, okay, this is really where I want to go and what I want to do next. 
do you think that the fashion background, um, that some amount of the aesthetics of that impacts mm. the way that you think about literature? Yes, definitely. I've always been attracted to the very ornate, the garish, the sort of, the thing that flirts on the borderline of being like trash. I quite like that. I'm not a full on like trash aestheticist. That's not really my style. I still kind of cling to sort of like a, um, often quite naive sense of beauty and surface mm -hmm. beauty that I really like in terms of the the prose that I write. Um, but yeah, certainly that the sort of the, the drama and the aesthetics of fashion, I think. Yeah, some kind of kind of inspiring kind of glee about kitsch mm. and camp. And yeah, kind of exaggerated. Right, right, moments. right. Yeah. Definitely. But also something but without veering too far into that, like I, there's still a core of my work that still does it's actually quite earnest too like it does take itself quite seriously it's not all about like the um as you exactly as you say like the kitsch the camp as much as that has an appeal to me definitely cool mm. and then all right and then after that you decide to go into phd yes what's what motivated that decision because like mm. question for that were you yeah. writing at the time as well or were you just not i went on kind of a hiatus so you mean creatively, writing yeah, creatively? Correct. I always had something on the back burner, but it re was really only in the last two years, uh, three years that I've been really kind of seriously concentrating on kind of improving the craft and um, actually getting stories sold to a professional market. But um, Sorry, at that time you weren't really, and then something pushed you to doing a PhD? Yeah, well that was really, so uh, I, I did a master's at Queen Mary as well after my undergraduate degree, second undergraduate degree, mm -hmm. I should say. And I was just looking at where the, scholars were who I was reading and one of them was at Brown and one of them was here at Yale or oh, a couple of them were here at Yale and they were scholars and um, they were Hazel Carby and um, Waichi Dimmock and Jacqueline Goldsby the first two being like serious scholars of science fiction and to me that was very rare to see in uh, sort of the field of higher education like I, th I think it's fair to say if I can like make some sort of historical claim that science fiction and kind of as a genre wasn't really taken that seriously even like as recently as five years ago since I've been here and so there were some of the few scholars I saw who were actually doing really kind of exciting work in that field so that's what led me to apply to the PhD programs here in at Brown. Is your focus on science fiction? Yes, yes, okay. that's that's the focus of my research as well. Well you're also part yeah. of the African American studies? The, yeah that's my uh, secondary department so I'm in um, I'm a joint PhD so I'm in two departments. Cool, yeah. so what attracted yeah. you to that? How, how did that come along? I was really interested in what kind of politics the genre enabled and the authors I'm looking at kind of based on the 20th century black authors, specifically black women authors, have sort of lived through and been historically the subjects of really terrible things. Yeah, yeah. So the way they're using science fiction is to really sort of provide a counter narrative to the, the doom and gloom and murder and, and dystopia that yeah. that has sort of been the case in and out of the literature of science fiction. Yeah. The authors that I'm reading revise, reimagine, recast the tropes and kind of histories that the genre draws upon in really, really radical ways, I think. And that's been taken up big time in social media and social justice movements and projects. Uh, and it's really exciting to see science fiction used as a tool for like imagining different and better futures. And so my project is really trying to historicize that. Is the focus on like authors or the characters being 
people of color or people of uh, it's it's both that, that and that's what my kind of dissertation explores and it is looking at authors archives as well as their characters in their fiction for instance and the scenarios in their fiction and sort of seeing how the two relate to each other so looking at their research in science and medicine sort of the case studies that they've collected and um, analyzed and, and how that sort of comes across in in the actual fictional work too yeah. and sort of theorizing a connection between that and sort of um, emphasizing the importance of attending to these archives of writers such as Octavia Butler, who did all this kind of rigorous groundwork for producing a science fiction that can actually respond to this history, because it has to know the history and sort of collate and um, curate the history. Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about Octavia Butler? Because she's one of your primary <laughs> focuses, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, some, somebody I'm not day. very familiar <laughs> with. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Uh, so Octavia Butler is um, arguably sort of the key author that my dissertation focuses in on and so even, even though the scope of it ranges from like the late 19th century to um, 2006 with her last novel um, she is sort of woven into every chapter because as well as kind of producing extremely well-written thought-provoking ethical aesthetic beautiful novels she is one of the first um, black science fiction authors who gained national international prominence uh, at least from from the US standpoint she was really one of the first to make an intervention into the field that was dominated by historically you know, white male figures. Um, and certainly that was not, you know, it could imagine all sorts of outlandish life forms and <laughs> creatures and what have you in a futuristic setting, but wouldn't, for example, portray people of color necessarily. And her, her letters especially are really kind of um, telling in, in that they document her efforts to try and kind of bring other writers into the science fiction community I would say so um, that's why she's so important to, to kind of me and my project and, and I think she's awesome and everyone should read her <laughs> that's that's I mean it's interesting that like yeah there is this kind of underrepresentation of, mm. of people of color but, but you yourself are a white man mm-hmm. just for the people who can't oh, right, yeah. can <laughs> see you <laughs> so yeah. I think that like does that like is yeah. it enough to be just aware of the history and so that you can like, what do you think like, your contributions with the like, I don't know. What, how, do you feel like your identity itself affects the way you're like you're writing? Or do, like do you mean my my scholarship or my creative writing or both? Yeah, you're. I think both basically. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. In terms of like mm. your your creative writing, like if it is, like like clearly you have your own mm. set of uh, mm. assumptions being like mm-hmm. given who you are. Mm-hmm. That's true. But you're given your academic work. Yeah. You are yeah, yeah. like kind of more open to these different yeah. things. So no, like it's how true. Do you, how does that affect? I think that's a really good question. One of the things my advisor always said to me, Jacqueline Goldsby, she, she said, you know, whatever you do, you just got to produce the good work. If you want to be a good ally, if you want to be sort of an ethical <laughs> scholar, you have to produce the good work in terms of, you know, do your readings, be rigorous about your bibliography. The way I frame my dissertation, it has been um, certainly foregrounding the work of scholars of color and then sort of saying, I'm going to take up the concept, say, of visionary fiction, which um, was conceived of by um, Walida Imarisha and Adrian Marie Brown, two social um, justice activists and, and writers and scholars who have used Octavia Butler's work to kind of launch new projects based on her science fiction and sort of bring in other authors to create anthologies about um, her work. But for instance, I'm using their concept of visionary fiction to sort of elaborate upon, build upon. So it's just a way of framing it too. I think it's it's all about being respectful, being sensitive, and being aware that, you know, I think a lot of the times in academia we're encouraged to like make very strong claims about, 
you know, this is my research, this is my intervention, I'm the first to do this, you know, I'm, I'm the only one who can see the links between yada, yada, yada. And, you know, obviously that's kind of a crude version of it, but it's just something that is not really appropriate to a project like mine. Like, yes, it's, you know, arguably has to be doing something new, but it's, it's just not, you know, people have been doing the work and, and who are affected by, you know, directly by the stakes yeah. of this work. And I think I just always try to recognize that in my own scholarship. Um, yeah. I was going to just take it to like a bit more mechanical mm-hmm. aspect of this. Who do you know how to approach? How do you yeah, even like, right. pitch this? And how, right. How does that work? Um, it's re- it really just start by reading them. Like reading each magazine, like every editor is different. Every editor looks for something different. If you're lucky, you get a little bit of personalized feedback from these submissions. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that these magazines get so many submissions that they just have to send out stock rejections. Um, and a lot of the feedback I was getting was, you know, this is great. We like your writing. The pacing's a bit off. Usually was the case, blah, blah, blah. But have, you know, good luck sending elsewhere. Um, and it's really just getting to know what editors like. But also a lot of it is just like sheer darn persistence. Mm. Like reading the magazines, you know, it, one, really making an effort to like, write better too like it's not just a case of like throw things at a board until something sticks it's really sort of like throw something it bounces off pick it up like fix it a bit (laughs) throw it again Uh, and do you like how do you do that do you like uh, there are chunks of time that you just dedicate towards writing or is it I I steal them I steal chunks of time like I have to like I was uh, I was saying to Nicholas I'm trying to finish my dissertation this uh, year but uh, I, I find the time like I find the time just a little bit here and there a couple of hours in the morning uh, and I have to say, it's actually, it weirdly helps the, the academic writing because there's nothing worse than slogging through, like, a story that has just completely stalled. It's not going anywhere. You just, every sentence you're writing is crap. Like, everything that comes out of your character's mouth is crap. <laughs> but you push through, you push through, and then you think, okay, right, enough of that. Let's go back to the, the dissertation. And suddenly it's like, oh, here's the structure. Here, like, I can, I can mm. quote people. I can, you know, like, here's my argument. And it's so much easier. Yeah. It's so much. It, it's so. I mean, I know it sounds kind of a bit counterintuitive, but it is. I mean, like, um, yeah, I would imagine like there are a lot of people who do academic write, mm. work, especially in English mm-hmm. and American writing. They become so mm-hmm. uh, conscious, self-conscious mm. about producing anything yeah. because like they've seen so yeah. much criticism, they've dealt with right, that so right, much that right. they become. Yeah. But it's good to be like inspired by yeah. that rather than be right. put like yeah. No, and it's true. I, th- I think what writing fiction does is that like even when you're writing crap. Like, you've got to keep pushing through yeah. because you can't edit a blank page. Like, and that's one thing that fiction has been, writing fiction yeah. has been really helpful to do. Like, sometimes you're not feeling it. You're not, like, you know, you, you're not sure and you haven't read enough and this, that, and the other. Like, and fine, all of that may be true, but like, you can still write something that might have the glimmers of something useful yeah. for later on. And you find um, that, like, you have, like, this chunk of time that you're mm. dedicating and then, like, things come up? Or, like, are you, like, inspired by something and then you're, like... Oh, that's a that's a question. Some stories definitely come out much easier than others. It's usually a combination of two very disparate things, like visual things that come together in my head and um, inspire the story. And sometimes I can just write a story from beginning to end, and I know it flows. I know where the narrative is going to go, and that's great. Other stories, just for the life of me, I can't get into like which character should I focus on, like what on earth is going to happen. This story was one of the ones that came very quickly, and. I don't want to say easily because it it's not easy, but yeah. I knew what was gonna ha- exactly what was going to happen to the mother mm. and the child when I set out to write it. I saw a video of the Jesus Christ lizard, which is a lizard that can run across the water. You've probably seen yeah, slow motion yeah, yeah, footage yeah. of it. Um, it catches air bubbles in the 
skin of its feet and has to kind of keep moving very fast across the surface of the water to not break the surface tension. So I thought, okay, that's a really, really interesting thing. Sort of file it away in my head somewhere and, and see what becomes of it. Melded with that imaginatively was Alan Kurdi, who was the um, Syrian child who was drowned on the beach um, in 2015. Reading the plight of refugees, I thought, what would happen if you have uh, a race of people who had this ability to, in times of great desperation, flee across the the, the water, flee across a, a body of water, right? Um, and I thought, okay, well, let, let's think this through. Um, this is going to be uh, a feat that requires a huge amount of energy, and it really is a last-ditch attempt, a, a desperate um, thing to happen. It, it can't just be that they can run across the water without consequence, because that wouldn't be true to the whole concept of the story. Those two kind of concepts melded into my head, so I thought, okay, let's have let's have a race of essentially humanoid lizards like the Jesus Christ lizard, but let's say that this act that one particular mother is about to take has to have its own kind of cultural um, grounding and physiological grounding um, to, to make happen. And, and what would happen if she could do that and if yeah. she could make that trip? So that, that, was yeah, the, the that was the initial inspiration for the story. Cool. There is something like, but like, yeah, I mean, the focus on the refugee crisis here. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's going to be affecting like our generations, like some sort mm. of like PTSD that it has mm, with this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thing where it's like it happens grotesquely and like yeah. and like we really don't know how to process it and it's really coming out yeah. now. So the combination of that with this kind of grotesquery, like of the of the like the creatures themselves, because it does does it seem to you like in your imagination these figures are somewhat like okay. scary. It's kind of. To me, they're not scary because I think lizards are really cool. Yeah. Like, I think they're freaking awesome. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I guess a, a humanoid lizard would be unnerving. But they, well, they weren't intended to come across as uh, monsters. Uh, they, they were meant to come across as startling. Like, they're meant yeah. to be sort of, or, or at least unsettling. Think, and which yeah. is precisely the yeah, reaction that is interesting to provoke. Because yeah. it's like, holy shit, you're on the shore and there's this mm. sort of strange being... Yeah, running towards your yeah. territory like what do you do like how do you respond to that yeah it took me a while to figure out what was happening mm-hmm. there but that's once it clicks it's it's really it's it's interesting that you what's going on with like the the imagery of the, the creatures themselves mm-hmm. are very like you hint People. at how they look at but yeah it's oh, oh, no what how you look <laughs> how you see us right now that's something that really struck me though is, i mean after this <laughs> This description that seems, you know, by our, our sort of normal, commonplace ways of thinking, mm-hmm. very non-human. You mm-hmm. explicitly describe them as yeah, human, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's very fun. When I read that story, and that's <coughs> thinking like there is like, I didn't see the hope. Do you have like a cynical outlook to life? You feel, or do you feel? No, like not at all. I'm a very positive person. <laughs> I actually am. I'm very positive. <laughs> uh, I think you're right. It is a little bit of a cynical story, but I think a lot of that is just. I was with family in England when Brexit was voted mm-hmm. for in, the, in June, and it was hard not to feel that, like, that disappointment. One of the things that writing lets me do is, like, hey, let's sit with this idea. Let's sit with a, you know, piece of recent history, or let's sit with a kind of political concept and try and play, like, really sort of think through its implications, think about how people behave in that situation, what might people do whether they think it's good or bad. 
Mm-hmm. Everything happens at such a fast pace. Like we see things every day, we react to them, we react to them. And, and they're often really dramatic and horrid things. And yeah. it just gives me that time to sort of reflect a bit more. That's good. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the, the readers yeah. too. And the the couple at the end, um, I, I don't want to, I probably shouldn't spoil this story <laughs> if you want to read it. But <clears throat> the couple at the end is the man and the woman who are sort of discussing things are supposed to kind of show the limits of empathy or like the limits of a very shallow engagement with politics that makes pronouncements like, what kind of a world we live in? Oh, isn't it terrible? You know, and that's that. And this story was sort of trying to jolt that mentality in a way. It's like, well, this is this is what happens if if you think like that and if you if you say that. And it's easy to be moved by images of things that you wish you could change without actually trying to do things to change them. You can find Gennesaret by Phoenix Alexander, as well as other sci-fi and fantasy short stories, in Beyond Ceaseless Skies. There's a link to it in our description for this podcast. We'd like to thank Phoenix Alexander for speaking with us, Jennifer Sun for bringing this story to our attention, Julia Marshall for her work directing our Campus Conversations series, Barabadwan for taking the lead on this interview, as well as for his work behind the scenes, and Dean Slight for his oversight and support. I'm Nick Curry. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. You can also find us and subscribe at soundcloud.com slash YaleGradCast. If you have questions, feedback, ideas for an episode, or you want to get involved, send us an email at YaleGradCast at gmail.com. You can follow Yale Graduate Student Assembly on Facebook to keep up with new episodes and to find out more about how we're working for you. And finally, as always, thanks for listening. Gradcast. Brought to you by the Graduate Student Assembly.